Welcome. This is uh, Lynn Varco with the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare. Welcome to our next webinar in a series that we launched this year, highlighting Alliance partners, policy experts, and others who uh, advocate for compassionate care throughout life's journey and oppose the legalization of assisted suicide. Today, we are uh, honored to have Dr. Mark Comrade. In a minute, I'm going to formally introduce him. But I wanted to make sure everyone knows a little bit more about the Alliance, the Alliance for Ethical Healthcare. Uh, you can learn more about it at ethicalcaremn.org. And I'm going to uh, share my screen here and show you an opportunity to uh, stay engaged with the Alliance. Uh, by becoming uh, an Alliance partner. It's very easy to do. You can see the screen I have up here. It's ethicalcaremn.org slash join us with a hyphen between the join and us. And uh, we're particularly interested in having organizations join us. Right now we have about 75 organizations, including mental health organizations, disability organizations, veteran, veterans groups, and many others. So if those are organizations in your network, uh, please uh, use this link and uh, ask them to consider joining us. All right, so today we are honored to have uh, Dr. Mark Comrade. Uh, he will be speaking for about 20 minutes and then we'll have about 15 or 20 minutes for questions. You can use the chat function at the bottom of your screen and put your questions in there and we will get them up during the question period after Dr. Comrade speaks, after he's finished speaking. Dr. Mark Comrade is a practicing psychiatrist and medical ethicist for over 30 years in Baltimore, Maryland. He chaired the ethics committee for the Shepherd Pratt Health Systems, the largest nonprofit mental health care system in Maryland for two decades. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, the University of Maryland and Tulane. He has lectured and taught and consulted in the US and internationally on topics in psychiatric ethics and published numerous articles in the field. He is a member of the American Psychiatric Association, APA Assembly, and previously served six years on the APA Ethics Committee. In these two capacities, he helped craft and pass the new APA position statement finalized in December of 2016, which I quote directly from, a psychiatrist should not prescribe or administer any intervention to a non-terminally ill person for the purpose of causing death, unquote. Dr. Comrade has been lecturing widely through the US, Canada, Scandinavia, South America, and Europe to address the ethical concerns that several hundred suicide, suicidal psychiatric patients in Belgium and the Netherlands are being voluntarily euthanized each year with lethal injections, typically by their own treating psychiatrists. He has consulted to policymakers in several countries trying to dissuade them from legalizing assisted suicide and euthanasia or to prevent extending existing laws to include psychiatric conditions. And that is the topic that he is going to discuss today with us. Welcome, Dr. Comrade. You can unmute yourself and uh, join the conversation. And uh, we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you so very much, uh, Lynn. And for inviting me to this. Uh, it sounds like a fantastic lecture. I'm ready to hear it, but I suppose uh, I'm the one who actually has to give it. So uh, I just want to make sure, uh, is my screen being properly shared now? Yes, we can see it. Great. Thank you so much. 
Well, uh, thank you all for being here today. And I wanted to share with you uh, a very uh, high altitude overview of what's going on outside the United States uh, with regard to the remarkable uh, developments in several countries uh, that are beginning to allow, and some of them for quite some time, uh, the uh, eligibility of people with mental disorders only, with psychiatric disorders only, to have access to the emerging practices of euthanasia and assisted suicide. And uh, I am inspired by Melville, who wrote in Moby Dick, woe to him who seeks to please rather than to appall, because the tale that I have to tell you is one of great woe. Uh, and I intend to appall you because it appalled me and frankly has transformed me from uh, many decades of being a medical ethicist, consultant, uh, and clinician into somewhat of an activist for reasons that I think will become self-evident as I present to you uh, some of this information. Because frankly, uh, it wasn't until 2015 that I first discovered what was happening in Belgium. It had kind of been hiding in plain sight uh, over the course uh, at that point of about uh, 13 years in which psychiatric patients were allowed to start participating in the euthanasia program over there. And in most countries outside the United States, by the way, the predominant practice is euthanasia, which means giving a lethal injection administered by a physician. Uh, very rarely is it uh, physician-assisted suicide, which is what we have in the several jurisdictions in the United States, where you give a patient a prescription for them to take of lethal medications at the time and place of their own choosing, um, assuming that you know their suicidal granddaughter doesn't find it stashed in the closet first. Uh, but this video really struck me. It's uh, of a young woman uh, that uh, produced by The Economist, uh, Emily, who uh, was seeking euthanasia for, uh, for her psychiatric condition, which was, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, a personality disorder, borderline personality disorder. Uh, and uh, in the end, uh, she decided to pull back from the opportunity, uh, probably because she was getting a lot of press coverage. But uh, really that astonished me and really began me uh, on this journey. Uh, and I wanna just say as a psychiatrist that the definition of suicide that's given by our own uh, CDC uh, is really pretty self-evident. Death caused by self-directed behavior with an intent to die. This is the ordinary meaning of suicide that we deploy every day in the practice of psychiatry. Uh, however, the American Association of Su Suicidology uh, declared that legal physician-assisted deaths should not be considered cases of suicide. Uh, so in fact, uh, they have taken the concept of suicide and divided it into these two tiers. So one tier, which is the ordinary tier that we've been used to uh, throughout the history of psychiatry or the suicides we should prevent. And the other is suicides that rather than preventing, we should provide. And removing the very word suicide and calling it some kind of medical treatment has allowed them to parse that separate category of suicide that has created this very confusing two tiers that we now have. So it's a manipulation of language. Uh, George Orwell in his famous book, 1984, wrote, if thought can corrupt language, language can corrupt thought. And if you've read the book, there were various slogans there of kind of a corrupt, uh, corruption of language. War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, 
uh, in this current situation, we're trying to make uh, additional statements that can be paradoxical in this way, such as providing suicide as treatment and euthanasia is palliative care. Camus said to misname thing only adds to the world's misery. So let me take you overseas to tell you what's been going on uh, in the Benelux countries, the living laboratories that have been at this uh, for uh, almost two decades now. Benelux refers to Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. Well, in 2002 and then 2007, uh, these countries decided to make uh, accessible uh, uh, euthanasia to certain patients. They got out of the whole discussion of whether the patient should be terminal or non-terminal. So they effaced the difference between those two. And they also equated, which by the way, we psychiatrists have long been trying to promote uh, the difference between physical and mental suffering. They said that suffering is suffering and is suffering. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's physical or mental. They replaced the distinction between terminal and non-terminal uh, illnesses and instead said the, the eligibility is going to be based on whether a condition is considered unbearable to the patient and untreatable. And untreatable is not just up to the doctors, but it's also uh, up to what uh, the, the uh, treatments that a patient is willing to take. So this formula of unbearable condition that's considered untreatable that can be either physical or mental suffering, that opened the door for the chronically ill, for the disabled, and including people with psychiatric disorders. Uh, and again, I wanna emphasize that in these countries, the predominant method is euthanasia by lethal injection, not by prescription. So let me give you some of the findings about what's been going on in these living laboratories. So this is what's been happening in the Netherlands uh, up through, uh, actually, it's really, I just included 2020 uh, here. I need to change the title of this slide. There's been a 350% increase since it first became legalized in 2002 to the point where last uh, year, there were almost 7,000 euthanasias in the Netherlands. Uh, 6%, six out of every 100 human beings who have died in the Netherlands have died at the sharp end of a doctor's lethal injection on request. Uh, by the way, this article in the New York Times suggests that uh, as many as 23%, at least back in uh, 2016, as many as 23% were underreported. So these may actually be, uh, the numbers may actually be higher than what we show here. But specifically, as I told you, uh, patients with unbearable and considered untreatable psychiatric conditions uh, because mental suffering is allowed, uh, have been allowed euthanasia. And this shows you the growth uh, now up to uh, between you know, uh, 60 and, uh, and uh, uh, less than 100 patients, but still uh, each year in the Netherlands are given lethal injections on request. And in terms of what, for what conditions, uh, here's one particular study showing the 66 patients that were euthanized on request uh, over these three years. 42% uh, had mood disorders. You see that other diagnoses are there, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorders, psychosis, which is quite interesting uh, to consider that uh, even people with psychosis were considered uh, to have the capacity to consent to this. Uh, of significant importance is that over half the people had personality disorders. 
uh, which I don't have time to get into what those are, but I will tell you that the predominant treatment for personality disorders is actually psychotherapy. And of these 52%, uh, over 33 patients who were given euthanasia for personality disorders, uh, almost one third of them had no history of treatment with psychotherapy. Over half refused one or more recommended treatments because that had, is allowed in the Netherlands. And almost three quarters of them were ultimately euthanized by the same psychiatrists who had previously been trying to prevent their suicide throughout their treatment course. Their own probably exhausted treating psychiatrists succumbed to the patient's request for giving them euthanasia. Uh, here's one documentary that was done about this autistic uh, young man uh, whose parents were delighted to have an opportunity to at least plan for his euthanasia after they died and were no longer able to care for him. Uh, in this documentary, they said, euthanasia is a sacred word for us. When we've passed away, for whom would Keyes stay alive? His deepest wish is to go to sleep. He will be totally satisfied. Euthanasia is a wonderful option. Uh, by the way, things are going uh, uh, apace, uh, and once the slope begins to slip, uh, it travels to, uh, it begins to accelerate. Uh, we're now beginning to see the largest political party in the Netherlands pressing to demedicalize euthanasia and making it available for those who simply feel that they've completed their lives uh, or feel that uh, they're tired of living. That hasn't passed yet. Now, let me take you to Belgium, uh, which uh, has had also uh, since 2002 euthanasia available uh, for psychiatric patients. But here's the overall story about euthanasia in Belgium. Uh, they've had about a thousand percent increase uh, over the course uh, of uh, the last uh, 19 years. Uh, and again, as many as 40% of the euthanasias may actually be unreported. Uh, Almost uh, three out of every 100 human beings who die in Belgium die by medical euthanasia. And in the Flanders region, it's between six and 7% uh, of people uh, who die do so through euthanasia. And this is the picture of euthanasia for primarily psychiatric disorders. Uh, now also, uh, there are many people with medical disorders whose primary reason for wanting uh, euthanasia is anxiety, hopelessness, uh, uh, and fear uh, of the future. So if you just include people in general for whom mental distress, emotional distress was a primary cause, you see it's far more uh, than just those with a formal psychiatric disorder. And here is a review of 57 patients in 2019 who had psychiatric euthanasia. You can see all the different diagnoses there. And once again, personality disorders uh, is the most common diagnosis, uh, really much more than even depression uh, or bipolar disorder. This is the person who's done, she's a psychiatrist, uh, the lion's share of psychiatric euthanasia. Uh, she wrote this book called Libera Me, Free Me on Euthanasia and Psychological Suffering. Uh, she calls herself a pioneer, uh, so that I'm loved, and hated. She feels that she's advancing the moral uh, boundaries uh, to, in a progressive way, to pioneer the uh, access for psychiatric patients. Uh, so besotted are they 
in Belgium with uh, euthanasia that for uh, many years, uh, a Catholic order that runs the majority of psychiatric hospitals in Belgium, the Brothers of Charity, uh, resisted uh, uh, having euthanasia available in their psychiatric facilities. They have over 5,000 psychiatric inpatient beds in Belgium. That is until 2017, when even this Catholic order announced that they will allow euthanasia to take place in their psychiatric hospitals. They were so pressured uh, by uh, the social zeitgeist there. Uh, the Pope, of course, uh, responded uh, that I don't think so. He said, euthanasia hides behind alleged compassion to justify killing a patient. The dignity of human life is at stake. Nothing must prevent you from putting more heart into your hands. Well, uh, the head of the Brothers of uh, Charity uh, hospital system, who's a lay person, was the former prime minister of Belgium and actually the first president of European Council respond, responded to the Pope and said, the time of Roma locuta causa finita is long past, which translates into the old phrase, Rome has spoken, end of discussion. He says, no, that's no longer the case. We will do what we want. And the Brothers of Charity hospitals are now open to psychiatric euthanasia there. Now, let me bring you back to this side of the Atlantic and tell you what's happening in Canada. In Canada in 2016, they passed a federal law allowing euthanasia for conditions that were considered intolerable to patients and also were considered untreatable or futile. And they struck their own unique Canadian term, uh, the idea that it's eligible for patients whose death is in the reasonably foreseeable future. That was generally taken to mean people who were at the end of the life, but it was not statutorily defined. Uh, and because people with psychiatric disorders were not considered to have death reasonably foreseeable, they were excluded from uh, access to euthanasia in Canada. Well, it really took off once it became legal. Uh, you can see last year they had over 7,500 euthanasias. Uh, two and a half percent of every Canadian death, uh, or almost uh, between two and three out of every 100 human beings in Canada is dying by euthanasia. Uh, at this point, uh, the total number is over 24,000 uh, as of April. Now again, psychiatric patients were not eligible in Canada. However, uh, in September of 2019, this standard that death must be reasonably foreseeable was challenged and was overturned in a Quebec court in one of the provinces uh, as invalid. Well, uh, the federal parliament took that as their cue to revisit the euthanasia law, and they decided to create a, a bill amending the law, which removed the criteria of death in the foreseeable future. This, uh, this so-called C-14 law became a, the bill, the C-7 pill, uh, which sought to follow the model that I just told you about in the Benelux countries in Europe, that merely having an intolerable condition that was considered untreatable would be sufficient. That moved the eligibility back from those towards the end of life to those with chronic illnesses. And in March of uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, that bill was formally approved, expanding their medical assistance in dying, which is what they call it there. Uh, and 
this bill says that the previous exclusion of people with mental illness will be lifted two years from now. And that will be a study period in which the protocols for how to distinguish people who are whose suicide should be prevented from those for whom suicide should be provided who have psychiatric disorders, that will be studied over the course of the next two years. This bill also uh, took away uh, a waiting period for people who were terminally ill uh, and uh, said that you could have, uh, if your death was reasonably foreseeable, there's no waiting period. You could get euthanasia the same day that you asked for it. And if you're not terminal, if you're just chronically ill, uh, there's only a 90-day waiting period. By the way, uh, even in Canada, it's difficult to get an appointment with a psychiatrist, and it often takes more than 90 days. Now, I want to just remind you that the American Medical Association has said that all physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia is fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as a healer and would be difficult or impossible to control and would pose serious psychiatric risks. And the AMA has twice studied it through their Council on uh, Ethics and Judicial Affairs, deeply done a deep dive into it. Uh, and they have uh, twice reaffirmed the fact that uh, that this is the position of the AMA. And they have also said, we will not change our language from assisted suicide to, to uh, medical aid in dying. And the American Psychiatric Association, as Lynn told you, I was part of this effort, crafted uh, a, their own separate statement. They always followed the AMA, but we felt we needed an additional uh, uh, point to make uh, against the administration of these procedures to people who are not terminally ill because that kind of covers our category of patients. Uh, we wanted to send a message a few years ago over to Benelux uh, to tell them that we do not consider this an a activity that's ethical for a psychiatrist. Now, I want to address this idea because so many of these uh, laws require a sense that a patient condition is untreatable. And I think that that, uh, or futile, and I think that is very challengeable in psychiatry. Because first of all, uh, our diagnoses, because you to make a prognosis, you have to have a reliable diagnosis. And the reliability of psychiatric diagnosis is something that's very uh, uh, fungible in psychiatry. Uh, two different psychiatrists often disagree uh, and the diagnosis tends to change over time. Uh, even if you have a diagnosis we can agree upon, psychiatric uh, prognostication is highly unpredictable. Also, in our field in particular, we have a great deal of problem uh, with patients being able to access treatment. There are not enough uh, psychiatrists and other mental health professionals to go around. There's often a long wait to get in to see psychiatrists. Uh, there are often great financial barriers, barriers. there's stigmatism uh, and a tendency to, uh, to, uh, for ableism with uh, discrimination against people with chronic disabilities. And there are so many different diverse treatments that are available in psychiatry, many of which are not even covered by uh, many insurance programs uh, and have to be paid for out of pocket. Uh, and one can precess from one treatment to another. Uh, as uh, 
this uh, bioethicist and psychiatrist who actually gathered a lot of data from uh, the Netherlands has said, it's not easy to distinguish between a patient who's suicidal and a patient who qualifies for psychiatric euthanasia because they share many key traits. And in many cases, psychiatric euthanasia is simply a highly effective means of suicide. The past president of the Canadian Psychiatric Association comments on the difficulty making accurate prognoses in psychiatry. Said an extensive review of the literature shows that we can't predict irremediability when it comes to mental illness. And to dismiss this as the false equivalence that nothing is 100% in medicine, so there's nothing different for mental illness would be wrong. There's a big difference between being able to predict the declining course of a well-known medical ailment with understood biology, even if not 100% with 100% certainty, versus making unpredictable assessments about the course of mental illnesses. So when we have these two different uh, tiers, suicide that we should prevent and suicide that we should provide, in many ways, it actually, since uh, physician-assisted dying is generally, according to the American Association of Suicidality, well accepted within the community and society at large, that uh, if we actually accept it for that group, it actually puts people with mental illness, uh, suicides uh, that we should prevent. Uh, I actually put the little uh, thing in the wrong place. Uh, I actually, uh, it actually belongs with the suicide we should prevent. We're actually increasing the stigma uh, for those for whom we should prevent suicide because we're reducing the stigma from suicide that we should provide. Forgive me, that slide is an error. So I really assert that providing suicide for psychiatric patients inverts the fundamental ethos of psychiatry, the fundamentals of what we do and who we are. We in psychiatry really are instantiated in our profession, through our training, through our professionalism to prevent suicide, not to provide it. Uh, this is actually a fundamental mission that defines our very impression. Our role is to help people find a path to a better future, to help ameliorate their suffering and develop their coping mechanisms uh, for demoralization and discouragement. We help to understand the context of suffering. We actually can uh, take the uh, suffering that we can't alleviate and even help people make meaning of unresolved suffering. We deeply listen and we accompany people uh, through the journey of suffering, offering our presence and hope. We mobilize their support systems. We do all of those things. Uh, we don't actually provide suicide. We help people with their suffering and prevent their suicide. The psychiatrist's therapeutic role is to be a container of anguish, despairing, and hopeless emotions for a demoralized and depressed patient. As such, he and she waits for an opportunity to instill hope and encouragement back into such a person. Since as Eli, uh, Elie Wiesel said, despair is the question, hope is the answer. So let me conclude just in general, not just about psychiatric suicide, uh, uh, assisted suicide, but uh, all assisted suicide in medical ethics, uh, in, in, uh, in medicine. Uh, I want to say that it is bad medical ethics and it's bad public policy. Uh, it's bad medical ethics because uh, there are other options. People who are disabled and suffering already have the option of either 
committing suicide or palliative sedation. Uh, these policies are inconsistent. They represent an uneven application of suicide prevention. Suicide is prevented for some and permitted for others, which can, which can actually increase the stigma for ordinary suicide. It represents not a real choice, but a pseudo choice. The choice is forced by having fewer options in other domains uh, due to uh, economic forces, uh, inadequate access to palliative care or mental health services. And when it comes down to it, it's ultimately up to the doctor to decide whether the patient's suffering is intol sufficiently intolerable or not. I think this patient's suffering is intolerable. This patient isn't. Ultimately, physicians are still the ones who make the ultimate choice. So it's a kind of pseudo autonomy. It's a tremendous slippery slope and that safe, safeguards for limiting do not hold as we see in the living laboratories of these experienced countries where they're now moving towards over-the-counter suicide pills or uh, suicide for uh, euthanasia for life that's not worth living or tired of living uh, or people who feel they have completed life. I, it's unethical medicine. Uh, as many of our major medical organizations like the American Academy for, uh, for uh, Physicians, the AMA, the World Medical Association have declared, uh, it undermines millennia of medical ethics where the physician is a healer, a bringer of comfort, a support in the face of death, not an active killer. We may be able to get out of the way of death. We comfort always, we cure sometimes, but never kill. It represents a moral outsourcing by moving responsibility for a socially forbidden act, suicide, uh, to a physician by medicalizing suicide. Uh, and as such, it actually mitigates a very important factor in suicide prevention, which, which is the taboo against suicide. I don't have uh, time today to show you how in some countries that have legalized this, uh, this has actually led to an increase in uh, ordinary suicide. Uh, but removing that taboo by saying suicide is okay for some, but not others, is very problematic. And I think it fetishizes autonomy, it elevates autonomy as an exclusive moral principle over all other principles that a civilized society has to embrace in addressing the common good. The editor of the Journal of Ethics and Mental Health has written, just as the Pope should not perform abortions and the Dalai Lama should not take up arms, a psychiatrist should not counsel or abet suicide. For in doing so, we have misunderstood and betrayed our vocation and profession. Validation of suicide or assisted suicide by psychiatrists is therapeutic and professional hypocrisy. Thanks very much and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Comrade. Um, you can uh, take your, uh, there we go. Uh, thank you for that really uh, provocative and interesting thought-provoking presentation. We do have a couple of questions. We probably have about 10 minutes for questions and I wanna get right to them. Uh, before that though, I am gonna share in the chat uh, the YouTube channel for the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare, where you can view this webinar and uh, past webinars uh, anytime. So we have uh, several questions here in the queue, and I will start with uh, this one. 
Uh, it says, uh, so according to the American psychiatrists, if the patient's illness is terminal, euthanasia is okay? Good question, thank you. I, and I, I said something very quickly there and I'm glad you've given me an opportunity to return. So the uh, APA, the American Psychiatric Association, follows the code of ethics of the AMA. As a matter of fact, our code of ethics is called the AMA code of ethics with special annotations for psychiatry. So it's, we, it's already established that we follow the AMA in that. We just felt this additional statement was needed because it covers the domain of patients with psychiatric disorders who really we do not consider uh, terminal in any kind of reliable and predictable way, as I said. Uh, and we wanted to really fire a shot across the Atlantic uh, to land in Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, uh, and now are firing the same shot up to Canada with an additional position in that, uh, in that regard. Our next question is more broadly about the euthanasia movement in general. Dr. Comrade, from where you sit as a uh, healthcare expert, who or what is driving the movement for euthanasia and assisted suicide uh, in the countries you spoke of, but also in the United States? Right, I, I think it's very diverse. Uh, and I think that uh, the center of gravity of uh, who is driving the, this train and may be different from country to country. Interestingly, uh, I think that an issue in Belgium uh, and the Netherlands, but especially Belgium that I think may be less applicable to the United States are forces of secularism that are pushing back against a, uh, a hitherto previously very Catholic country. Uh, I think that that's, that's one of the forces that you see over there. Uh, I think uh, in Canada, uh, I think that the forces that are, are pushing this are uh, forces of, that, that are allied with a number of other liberal causes. But in general, I think that, uh, and the people who are availing themselves of it, I think are the same demographic as the people who are pushing it. They tend to be uh, the racial majority in most countries. They tend to be more wealthy. Uh, they tend to uh, have, uh, uh, have more education. Uh, we see that the people who are availing themselves uh, of these uh, procedures have a very different demographic. Of course, here in the United States, uh, one of the chief proponents uh, that are pushing uh, in all these states is the organization Compassion and Choices, which is a legacy of a various previous incarnations that go all the way back to the so-called hemlock society uh, that have been, uh, that actually emerged uh, early on uh, act from the eugenics movement, as a matter of fact, the initial forces uh, that began this. Uh, and we can have a whole other discussion about the way in which there may uh, still continue to be that theme embedded in this movement, uh, which continues to at least implicitly, if not explicitly, uh, imply that there are lives that are not worth living. Uh, not just the lives of the terminally ill, but uh, also the chronically ill. And we've seen in all the states that have gotten the camel's nose under the tent, so to speak, with, some, with initial physician suicide, uh, assistant suicide laws here in the United States, every state has then pushed for further expansion 
shorter waiting periods, uh, looser criteria for eligibility, uh, and then uh, as we've seen uh, attempts in Canada and Washington beginning to push beyond assisted suicide by lethal prescription for euthanasia by those who can't administer them, uh, this to themselves. And that has been uh, also very much uh, sponsored by this organization, Compassion and Choices. We have a question here about uh, the need for quality palliative care before uh, authorization or legalization of assisted dying. If you wanna talk about how that could be a compassionate alternative, that is something that the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare has been advocating for this legislative session in Minnesota to fully fund the Minnesota Palliative Care Advisory Council. But there's other uh, areas that can be worked on in this uh, medical, um, in medical area as well. A number of palliative care organizations, such as the two leading palliative care organizations in Canada have declared quite explicitly in their own uh, ethics codes that euthanasia and assisted suicide is not one of the tools of palliative care. They wanna distinguish themselves from that. Unfortunately, palliative care is often underfunded uh, and often there are often uh, insufficient people trained in palliative care and the public often doesn't know enough is not educated sufficiently about palliative care. But I wanna actually uh, complement the idea of palliative care from something from my own wheelhouse, which is mental health care, psychiatric care. There is no jurisdiction in the world uh, that actually requires uh, any eligible person uh, who uh, by virtue of uh, their, the criteria to have a mental health assessment, let alone an attempt at mental health treatment. It is the option of the evaluating physicians who, if they have a question, maybe this person has a mental disorder, we should rule that out and we should get a psychiatric consultation. It's not mandatory, it's optional, or and or if the evaluating physicians have any question about the person's competency or capacity, then they have the option of consulting a, a psychiatrist or other mental health professional in some countries. Uh, but it is not mandatory. Uh, we know that in the 2020 report that just came out of Oregon, uh, whereas in the first year that this was legalized uh, in Oregon, 33% uh, of cases had a psychiatric consultation as part of the evaluation process. In 2020, 0.8%, less than 1% of patients who were prescribed lethal drugs uh, and took them in Oregon actually were referred for a psychiatric evaluation and nobody uh, was actually uh, given the, certainly the requirement or, or the opportunity to have psychiatric treatment to engage in all of those kinds of skills that I told you that we in psychiatry have to help people find a path to a better future and to deal with their suffering. So they didn't have that opportunity. So not only would I be wanting to promote palliative care in general uh, for patients, uh, especially people who are terminally ill, but also proper psychiatric, mental, comprehensive mental health treatment to be a required uh, step uh, in these, to you know, give us a chance, let us do our thing uh, before we decide to push the patient uh, over the suicide cliff with a lethal prescription. 
Thank you, Dr. Conrad. We have time for probably one more question uh, and uh, maybe a one minute uh, answer. Um, it's regarding your really remarkable article that you just published in the Psychiatric Times, which is in the chat. The link is if, if the attendees wanna look at that. But one of the arguments that advocates of uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia use, um, in particular for, for patients with mental illness, that it would actually be discrimination not to allow someone this free choice uh, to end their life, um, someone who has a psychiatric disorder. So how do you handle that sort of tortured definition of discrimination? I think you alluded to it earlier in the last six criteria you talked about uh, with maybe fetishizing the idea of autonomy, but maybe in brief in a minute, if you just wanna summarize how that argument has been kind of flipped on its head, something we've used on our side, but now the other side. Yeah, well, first of all, that, that assumes that it was the right thing to do for people who don't have psychiatric disorders, right? And uh, you can see that my opinion is it was the wrong thing in the first place. So, you know, let, let's not make a bad situation worse. Uh, and in fact, I think that uh, uh, at this point, you know, the horse is out of the barn, right? So what do you do to prevent it from going to further pastures for the chronically ill uh, and the, the psychiatrically ill? Uh, I think that, in fact, I think it would be uh, a discrimination against psychiatric patients to not protect them, uh, to not be able to provide for them uh, the treatment that they need, uh, the wide variety of treatments that are available to us. Uh, so on the contrary, I think that it would be a, a disservice and a stigma to psychiatric patients not to circle around them, uh, to protect them and to de defend them against the kind of hopelessness uh, that is being sold here. And we know how to do that. We know how to help people who are hopeless. Thank you, Dr. Mark Comrade, uh, for a remarkable presentation. Uh, you can view this presentation, this webinar, and past webinars at our YouTube channel, which is in the chat. I'm also going to share the uh, link that if there are organizations in your network that are interested in becoming involved with this issue. Maybe they are mental health organizations, maybe they are disability organizations, veterans groups, healthcare providers. That link that I just provided, uh, they can easily join our uh, alliance. Uh, there is a no cost and uh, no obligation beyond having your name listed on our website, but then you can get involved at different levels of advocacy uh, working on this really important issue. Uh, again, thank you, uh, Dr. Comrade, and uh, so we look forward to uh, having uh, all of our attendees join us next month on July 27th at noon. We'll be sending an email out about this, but Dara Baldwin from the Center for Disability Rights is going to be talking about the issue of healthcare disparities and healthcare equity as it relates to people with disabilities and how assisted suicide uh, would exacerbate all of those really uh, negative healthcare outcomes that those groups currently um, see uh, in their healthcare access. So with that, uh, we will uh, end the webinar and I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.